Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Veterans Care Association and Timor Awakening podcast. The Timor Awakening program is an 11-day immersive, holistic and peer-to-peer veterans program based in East Timor that has a singular vision, which is to promote the health and well-being of veterans and veterans' families. Due to the current restrictions from COVID-19, we are running slightly abridged programs on the Gold Coast uh, with the same vision and same aim. We're using these opportunities to sit down with our participants one-on-one and conduct podcast interviews to capture their story and their lessons learned and things that we can all learn from uh, as we as veterans and wounded healers move through our own journey and help others do the same. We're going to be covering a whole range of topics including defence transition, mental health, relationships, veteran suicide, PTSD and post-traumatic growth. Whether you're out and about or listening to this at home or driving in your car, we do trust that you'll learn a lot by listening to our participants. Thank you and enjoy. I feel like I had a bit of a breakthrough last night um, during the uh, sharing of our our uh, what our purpose is going to be moving forward. And since I left the military, I've been focusing on marine studies and started a marine science degree and um, didn't really have any direction. Mm. It wasn't until last night that... I kind of, um, I don't know if I mentioned earlier, but there's been a lot of um, abuse in my family, generational abuse from my mum's grandparents, my dad's grandparents, all the way through to how we were brought up violently. Um, As much as I didn't want it to happen, it kind of seeped into my family. And being charged with domestic violence, hurting your wife, hurting your daughters... It's quite shameful and um, I held a lot of guilt and shame for ages. Uh, being on this being on this course and working through other methods of therapy, I've kind of uh, learnt to forgive myself but also wanting to research into what love is because I don't feel like I've ever really experienced a back and forth relationship where two people loved each other and treated each other well so that's what I want to learn about that's what I want to find um I'd love to have a relationship with a woman where I can find that amazing Uh, be a good example to my daughters show them what a a loving relationship looks like show them what a a, a loving man looks like how he treats a woman properly how he treats his children properly Give them that example so that they can grow up and know what kind of man to look for so that they have a positive life. Amazing, mate. And if, and if I can do that, if I can succeed in doing that and change my family's dark past and pass it on to them and maybe someone hears this who's having problems can reach out and try and fix them, um, I think that's a worthwhile life goal. Was, uh, I was just out of play. I, okay. I just couldn't continue working in that environment that I was in. And, um, yeah, within the realms of what you're happy to talk about, I don't want to dredge up anything here any, any more than um, we might already being, but uh, what was key for you at that point? Like, how did you get through that? What was the? What did you learn out of it? Well, crikey, <laughs> lessons learned. Yeah. What a debrief. So... Um, Really, the issue was uh, I was well on the path to alcoholism um, when I left the army. Uh, I was a, I would say, heavy drinker. Um, you know, when it was time to front up for duty or something, it was fine. 
but uh, I enjoyed a drink. And uh, when I found myself uh, working with uh, people who just didn't, in my view, have the professional ethics of uh, military people, uh, and in fact were completely alien to me working in an academic civilian environment, um, I became rather stressed. I thought I was Superman, right. to take on the world, do everything, and I just drove myself into the ground to the point where uh, I was definitely drinking too much. Uh, there was an issue with the family, and it was like, do something. So I went to AA. Um, that really helped, but it didn't work. Um, so I checked into rehab. Mm-hmm. So I went into rehab at Corumban and did the program there, and it progressed me to the point where I could actually not drink and not want to drink. And uh, I haven't had a drink since 2007. Wow. Congratulations. That's awesome. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's, uh, it sounds like you really just did um, make the decision to reach out for help. You knew that w- what was <laughs> out there, like maybe not instantaneously, but you, you sort of got to a – you drew the line in the sand and went, okay, I need to go get some help. Uh, I didn't know – had no choice really. Right. It was like if I didn't do that, my life would be very, very different. Um, and without too fine a point, I'd probably not be here now. Yep, which is not uncommon. Yep. Sadly true. I hear that. Well, look, I really appreciate you, you know, sharing that with us and uh, having the, the courage and the vulnerability to, to share that because, you know, I think um, especially with people who served as an officer, I think sometimes there's this tendency to you know, want to bury that down even more, you know, because there's this sense of, you know, having to set the example or whatever the belief is, I don't know, but... Um, you know, we, it is, we're noticing that this does affect people of all ranks mm. and of all backgrounds. And, uh, yeah, I really, really appreciate you sharing that. Well, I'm not claiming exclusivity to it. And, mm. uh, you know, on the program, it sort of showed me that. It's been great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll probably say two – I will say two things. Yep. One was uh, the impact of uh, yoga right. and, and breathing mm-hmm. and really getting the uh, – the key notion of pausing to breathe and not, and as part of that whole thing, getting in contact with what's actually happening, what not what I think is happening, which is a big trap for me, and then being able to respond to a situation, a question, an action, or something, rather than react. Um, if you look liken it to say an IA, you know, whoop, contact front down, run to a crawl, observe, yep, yep, like, yep. whatever. No, that's like a drill. Life is not a drill. It just doesn't work. So that's a real big one. And the other one is pretty personal. It's uh, assuming uh, the support I have from my partner, Um, not taking into account how she might feel about things when I'm doing stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, just uh, the impact of me being the strong silent type and not communicating my feelings when she needs it so working on my empathy yep. uh, and then that will come across and uh, fit me up to be able to uh, work and support my peers and when I say peers anyone ex-military yep. and in fact police uh, fireys etc yep. those people First who really response. are left out of the equation I think because they don't have the DVA support they've just got compo or something I think so too and they're, they're sort of on the front line all the time 
you know, in the military life, you might do many, many years and never be on the front line at all, or maybe only uh, for a brief moment. Whereas these guys are mm. out those there guys need day support in, day too. Out. Yeah, hundred percent. Even while they're still serving, well, in fact, we need we veterans while we were serving could have done with some of that stuff too. I think. Yeah, I think. So. Um, I was working for a mining company. Um, in oh, I was working for a service company that worked in the mines. So working um, up at Moomba and um, up Roxby Downs. So they're both places in South Australia. Yeah, right. Okay. And so are you still in that sort of industry now? No. No, that's a, another, another story. story. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So um, I was doing all right when I was working away. Um, but what basically happened was we got a project and part of that project meant I had to work in the city um, I was working five days a week, 12 to 14 hour days in the city. Um, and yeah, I was wearing myself out. Yep. Um, I was hiding. Effectively, I was using work to hide in. Hide from what? Hide from my dreams and things I'd seen. Um, so we, uh, one, one night I come back from work and I was really tired. I just wanted to have something to eat and go to bed and I didn't really want to deal with the family issues or anything that night. And the uh, better half informed me that we had a school journey to go to. And I, I said to her I wasn't really up to going being with people. She said, no, 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 come on, this is part of being a parent, you know, something you need to do and all that, so... So and it was like I meet the teachers and meet the other yep. parents and all that sort of stuff, start of the year. So I went down, so we went to that. And while we were there, she met up with a friend who they were having uh, talks about other things. So they decided that they wanted to continue that talk afterwards and they were going to go for a coffee. And um, so I just, you can go in her car and I'll just drive home. Um, home's about 15 minutes from the school. Yep. Um, I, uh, I left the school and, I was, as I said, I was depressed and I was down and I started thinking maybe I just need to go away for a while and just, you know, be by myself for a bit. And that started to go into thoughts of being... Useless, worthless, all that sort of stuff. And then I got to the top of a hill and I remembered at the bottom of the hill there's the roundabout and then there's a massive tree about five, six metres wide. And, uh, yeah, it would have been about 9.30 at night. So I put my foot on the accelerator and uh, decided that I was... Why go for a drive? Why cause pain for everyone? Why not just end it? Why be here? Um, so, yeah, so I went through the roundabout. Um, I don't know if there was a car there or not. Had tunnel vision by then. Um, but at some stage, I hit something that woke me up, got me out of it. Um, I swerved, just missed the tree, had a uh, major panic attack there and then. 
Um, took myself home. Didn't tell anyone what I'd done. On the Thursday, I um, went to see my cycle, normal cycle appointment. And uh, I let her know what I'd done. Uh, she pretty much tried to get me locked up straight away. Um, there was something happening on the Sunday, so I, I made a promise to her that I was going to be safe and all that sort of stuff. And there's the thing that was happening Sunday I really, really wanted to attend to. And so she let me go to that. And then on the Monday I reported into the hospital and I ended up being there for seven and a bit weeks. Um, and whilst I was there, I worked out that I am a workaholic. Um, and I was using that as uh, self-medication. Yep. Um, to hide and to try to drown out all these other things that were going on in my head. So I, um, yeah, so... Since then, I haven't been working. Yep. Um, they put me on a three months not fit for anything. Yep. Um, and then the doctor, my GP, extended that to a 12 months. And that happened, um, as I said, yeah, February this year. So Pretty recently. Yeah. So I'm, I'm still in the stage of I don't know what the end of that 12 months stint looks like. But there's a fair, well, I'm certain it's not looking like going back to a 14-hour-a-day yep. job. Yep. Doesn't sound like that'd be a, the best best way forward. No. Okay. Well, thanks so much for, you know, a, I could tell as you were telling that story that that wasn't easy to um, you know, get off your chest and I'm sure we're not the first person you've told it to, but uh, I really appreciate you know, your, your raw and, and vulner- your rawness and vulnerability there. I really appreciate it because no, it's not easy and you know, anyone listening to that will uh, either resonate with themselves or they'll make sure that someone that needs to hear it does. So I really appreciate that. And, uh, and what did you, I guess, have you had the chance to reflect on that and, and sort of um, pull it apart and sort of dissect it and figure out um, I have, what's in it? I have had a chance to reflect on it and look at it and, one of the things that shocked me the most about it, and it's shocked um, quite a few people that I've spoken to in the medical petition, is the fact that in five minutes I went from possible, could do, to it's on. This is game day. It's, it's going to happen. Yeah. Not 24 hours, not 48 hours. You know, I did the assist course when I was in the army. Yep. They always talk about, you know, there's a, a 48 hour period where if you just insert yourself at the right time in that 48 hour period, you could save a life. Well, no, it was a five minute. Mm-hmm. It was five minutes from when I started the bad self talk yeah. to when I swerved to miss the tree. So if there was anyone listening to this that, you know, can resonate with that, whether it's retrospectively or they're in the throes of it right now, what would you say to them? Um, oh, there's all the, the normal jargon that you get told, you know, light at the end of the tunnel, yep. there's all that sort of stuff. Um, the, the one thing and the one real thing that saved my life is find yourself a shield. I've got a tattoo on my chest just above my heart, a 
It's a Southern Cross and it's got my five kids' names on it. And it's the two things I hold close to my heart. It's my kids and my country. And whilst that's printed on my chest, my heart will beat. And that's a promise I made to myself. Wow. And that's my shield. Yeah, do you want to maybe just explain a little bit more about what the academic journey has entailed? Yeah, so basically my, I guess, interest stemmed from, you know, the death of my son while he was still serving. Um, yep. We lost him to suicide in 2014. So since he died, um, I really wanted to delve into what suicide was, as strange as that sounds. But I wanted to know the ins and outs, everything there was to know. I didn't want to leave any stone unturned. Right. Um, so I actually did a master's in suicidology, which makes me a suicidologist now. Right. Um, but even that wasn't enough. I still wanted to know more and what are some of those contributing factors, particularly in the veteran space. And that's kind of how I almost stumbled across moral injury when I was looking at the veteran suicide statistics in the US and, you know, the PTSD and the links and all the rest of it. Um, and how veterans are just not recovering. Um, so I ended up finding moral injury and having a look at the links between moral injury and suicide, particularly in a veteran um, population. However, now with COVID, we're seeing much more research in the moral injury space across the healthcare arena, particularly internationally, when things like, um, you know, PPEs are not being given out because it's not enough. And nurses and doctors are going home infected with COVID and infecting their families. So the family members may be dying which is a huge moral burden for yes. somebody to bear. Um, so that's kind of how I came across the moral injury. And from there, um, I did my PhD, and that was wholly and solely focused on moral injury with Australian veterans. That's, a, that's an incredible story. And I just really want to you know, honour what, you, what you've done there. You've got an incredible purpose and an incredible why, and it's come from obviously tremendous sadness and tremendous tragedy. Um, and you've turned that around in some ways and uh, decided to turn that into work that benefits others. And that's a, it's a really honourable journey. Thank you. I, I can, uh, I think I speak for everyone when I say that. So, um, you know, let's just maybe unpack a little bit more what moral injury actually is. It's a, it's a phrase that a few of us have heard. We might have filled out a questionnaire here and there. Maybe it's starting to uh, come into some of the doctrine that uh, is um, delved into by veterans upon transition or upon return to operations, or maybe it has for a little while, but most people probably don't really know the ins and outs of what moral injury actually is. So moral injury in its basic form is a violation against what we believe is right and what we believe is good. You know, when we grow up, we're, you know, given an education, we live in a culture, we live with our families, and over time, our moral framework is built up through all these experiences and exposures, um, you know, to what we have going on for us as children um, into our adulthood. So that moral framework is very, very strong, you know, it can consist of things like loyalty, um, honour, commitment, you know, not being unfaithful and, you know, those. Okay, gotcha. And um, one thing that I found quite staggering, and some people would have seen bits and pieces of these sort of stats, is that just how high the numbers of suicide in defence, especially in, you know, just taking the last 20 years as an example, is compared to the amount of people we actually lost in combat. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so there are varying different data sets around. So we have to be very careful sure. when we're looking at suicide data because um, it's all sorts of different variables. So basically, in a very general sense, um, those people who died in combat, yep. um, suicide is often around 10 times higher than that. So for instance, these figures, you know, 41 
members died in combat, but over 500 died by suicide um, from between 2001 to about 2018. But other data sets would say it was 56 in combat and 465 in suicide. So we have to be careful, but still, still it's around higher. 10, years, yeah. uh, 10 times higher. And that's just in Australia? Yeah, just in Australia. Gotcha. Uh, Fast forwarding now sort of uh, more towards your transitional period. You said that you had some difficult times and you, you left the Defence Force uh, in a disfavourable manner. Um, what were the highs and lows and, and how did you navigate that time in your personal life? Um, the lows were the fact that I wasn't ready to retire. Mm. I wasn't ready to retire. And knowing that the injuries that I'd sustained while I was in defence would not allow me to go back into civilian work because I was broken, and both mentally and physically. Um, so, But I still have a brain, and mm. that's what got me angry with defence was the fact that you might not have been able to get full value from me, but I still had a brain that was able to rationally think, had been there, done that, also an older person, mm. that's the other thing, that, you know, um, so I, I believed I had a wealth of knowledge that I could still impart within defence and they let me go. So I was uh, disappointed, disappointed and, and, and of course, anger. Anger yep. was there. I've let go of the anger because, um, as I say, by being able to do things like the RSL and caring for veterans, uh, being part of uh, the, the Veterans Care Association and Timor Awakening, um, that's given me... I won't say a lot things to go on with. Yeah, it, it, it's it's continued and allowed me to still give, give and care, which is a big part of who you are. That's right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Nice one. And what's uh, been uh, your experience so far on the program? I come on with the, the presumption that I was here just to observe how the program ran, mm-hmm. so I can give feedback to current serving members mm. to say this this is a great program or what they actually offer in the program itself. And then I discovered whilst on the program that I was probably bluffing myself that that I actually had issues that haven't been uncovered before. Mm-hmm. And so I was quite grateful that that, that come out and now I've worked on it and I can see a, f- a way forward. Well, it takes a lot of guts to to see that and admit that and, and to to state it. So I thank you for that. Um, any anything in particular that you're comfortable sharing that sort of stands out that you, that sort of has been awakened a bit? Well, I think it was my relationship. I haven't been um, communicating quite well at all at home, um, and I'm on to my third marriage, mm-hmm. and this one wasn't looking too shiny either towards the end. And I discovered that I was probably the best actor in the world, as in putting on my uniform mm. every day. And it's like that Superman cape that you put it on, you're untouchable basically. Mm. You're quite familiar with your surroundings, you're quite, quite familiar with what the system is. But when I take that off, I didn't know how to communicate with people. Gotcha. Because unless they were defence personnel, I couldn't talk to them because I just believed that they didn't understand mm. the military system. And my wife not being a military person, I started to you know, get angry and shut her down, not talk to her at all. But I always thought it was their problem. 
I don't, mm. didn't believe it was my problem at all. And until now that I found that it's not actually them. They're actually beautiful people and I was the one shutting them down. And that awful thing is, and well, thanks for that. I mean, that's, uh, again, takes a lot, of, a lot of vulnerability and guts to sort of identify that and also to share it. Um, I guess everything you said there about being an actor and putting on the, the masks and the Superman, that's that's the product of the military, right? Like yeah. you as a, you know, as a leader have to put on a, uh, a certain demeanour so that you command the respect of the people and you can't show your uh, vulnerabilities because then you know, there's a risk people won't respect you. Like that's, I guess, the other side of it, that is a unfortunate but inevitable byproduct of the military system at times, given the paradigm that we're currently in. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah you can't show that vulnerability <coughs> to, to anyone. And I think that's, you know, that's your upbringing too, I mm. suppose, mm. if you're my age, that uh, throughout... Being a um, a child as well, do you you're always told you know just brush things off and mm. keep going. Mm. You don't talk about things. You know, same with any injuries. You don't go to the doctor straight away. You try to fix it yourself before, <laughs> yeah. before you go seeking some help. In a, in a few minutes, has brought you to a program like this, and what I guess has been your team more awakening. My overwhelming. What's brought me to this is my overwhelming desire to help other people who've been down this, who are going to have to go down the same track as I have, mm. which is um, wondering how the hell you ended up in such a low spot. I've been, I've been at the bottom of the well mm. and I decided I had to sort of top myself or get sorted out and I decided to get sorted out. So I sorted myself out. I didn't seek any help. And that only got me so far, and that was a mistake. I thought, okay, now I'm a lot better now. Uh, until my wife said, look, you know, if you don't go and get professional help, you won't be able to stay here. So I thought, right, well, I'll, I'll teach her. I'll go and check in with a shrink who does PTSD, and he'll tell me I'm fine, and I'll come back and tell her I'm fine, and i get off my back. And <laughs> I went there for a one-hour appointment with this guy, after the first hour, he cancelled the other appointments waiting outside and I spent three hours with him and he certainly let me know that I wasn't okay. Yep. And then I started on, on the road to getting something done. Yep. Well, it took guts, didn't it? It took... The only thing that has taken more courage was to bury my son, who was a chopper pilot who got killed by accident. Mm-hmm. Um... That's the toughest thing I've done in my life, this tracking through and getting where I am now. I, I really am probably the most fortunate person I know. Mm-hmm. I, I really have a great life. And so good. I work at it all the time, making sure that I don't get things wrong, which I tend to do. And I have to watch my brain. I have to have part of my brain under control at all times, otherwise I'll say something or do something which is stupid, which makes me feel good in the short run, but is destructive. I have a destructive element in me from my army time and I'm aware of that and I am doing things about that or I have done things about that. Mm-hmm. And is that further psychology support or what are some of the things that That's you found me. most effective? Most effective? Mm. Admitting that I have a problem. Mm. That's, that's the absolute first step. It doesn't matter what you do or how... You think if you can't go up to somebody, 
anyone, as I'm saying to you now, I have a problem. I had a problem, I have it, I will have it for the rest of my life. I just have to manage it, uh, which is what I'm doing. That's the most effective thing I've done. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We trust it's been valuable. If you've got any comments or questions, feel free to reach out to us at support at veteranscare.com.au and we do encourage you to share this podcast.